I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, in America, more and more women and men are having kids later. And there's a bunch of reasons why. One thing that came up a lot with the generation um, of childbearing age right now is financial concerns. A lot of insecurity about college loans and about the price of homes. And this change is crucial to understanding where we are right now. If you want to look at a red-blue map of the politics of the United States and you want to overlay that with a map of age at first birth, you're going to see a pretty strong correlation. Then a personality test has quietly slipped into very different corners of American society. How did it get so popular? That language of self that it offers is just so immensely clarifying and gives people a way to make sense of the absolute messiness of life. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If you were 21 in 1972 and a woman, there's a pretty good chance you were having, or you'd already had, your first child. But things have changed. The changes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s in terms of delayed family formation were really remarkable. Caitlin Knowles-Myers is an economist at Middlebury College who studies, among other things, women's fertility. And they're correlated with women uh, obtaining more education than ever before in entering the labor force in large numbers and entering occupations that they were never in before. And that's had a tremendous impact on uh, women's economic opportunity and also on, on families and total income. You could say that Knowles-Myers analyzes data that reveals the state of the American family. And that state is older and smaller. The average age of first-time moms has surged from 21 in the early 1970s to 26 now. And the average age of first-time dads has gone from 27 to 31. Meanwhile, the birth rate has plummeted to a record low. In fact, it's so low that the U.S. would be on track to lose population, except for the immigrants that we have coming in every year to fill the gap. And the reinvention of the family unit, it's not just a story about women. It's a story about technology, economics and modern concerns. Claire Kane Miller is a correspondent for The New York Times who has written extensively about what's behind this cultural shift. Now, I did talk to young men about the choices that they were making. One thing that came up a lot with the generation um, of childbearing age right now is financial concerns, a lot of insecurity about college loans and about the price of homes and about the price of college and whether they could actually afford to support a family in this um, current economy. Apparently, a lot of couples are deciding that having fewer kids or no kids at all is the right decision for them. Birth rates among women in their 20s are dropping. So are birth rates among women in their 30s. Only women 40 to 44 are having more babies each year. And part of the reason behind all these decisions is technology. The last few decades have brought us in vitro fertilization, which often expands how long women can have children, as well as new kinds of birth control and options around abortion. So I think one of the big themes of the late 60s and early 70s is the liberalization of abortion policy, which allowed women who did not wish to become mothers yet or do not wish to have another birth to terminate a pregnancy. Caitlin Knowles-Myers, the economist, notes that teen pregnancies and marriages shortly followed by a birth declined precipitously after abortion became widely available. 
And birth rates overall, including teen pregnancy, has come down even more in the last decade, perhaps because of another sort of technology. What's interesting is that it's pretty difficult to disentangle the effect of the recession on fertility from the other things that have been happening contemporaneously. So, for instance, the recession also coincides with the uh, introduction of the smartphone and the expansion of social media. And that also has affected fertility. Well, there's a theory that that's also affected fertility for teens. For instance, that social media access to smartphones both expands their ability to obtain information about contraception uh, and perhaps abortion also. But also there's a theory that it is an alternative to sexual activity. Put it bluntly, there's the thought that perhaps teens are spending more time on Snapchat than they are uh, having sex and that that might be contributing to the decline in, in teen births. So what is happening to the American family? What does this shift tell us about women's lives, men's lives, and how society is changing? In many ways, we're just catching up to other industrialized countries like France and Japan, where birth rates have been falling for a long time. But the averages also obscure a split in America, Knowles Myers says, and a reality that the new ways we think about family in this country are, like lots of other hot topics, really polarized. I think that that divide is very much about the choices that that women have. So right now, the average age of a first-time mother who has a college education is 30, and the average age of a first-time mother who doesn't have a college education is about 24. So they're quite different. Now, I should point out that some of those first-time mothers without a college degree will eventually get one. It's not as though some of them, you know, don't proceed with their education. But there's there's a big gap there. And I think one of the interesting questions in social science is to, to what extent does the age at which women are choosing to become mothers then affect their education and their career outcomes? To what effect does it drive that? And to what effect does it just reflect the choices that they that they have? For a young woman who doesn't anticipate that she's going to have access to a college education and doesn't anticipate continuing her education or pursuing certain careers, it may make a lot of sense to her to go ahead and have a child at a younger age. So in that sense, age at first birth can be as much a a marker of inequality in our society as it is a cause. Hmm. Um, Claire Kane Miller from The New York Times, I wonder what you see when you have talked to real people um, kind of like reflecting this divide. Uh, And uh, a quote from one of your articles really jumped out at me. It's from the interim chair of maternal fetal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. And what she said is, it feels like no one here has babies under 35 anymore. And I just thought that was so indicative of, uh, you know, what we've been talking about. It's exactly true. I think in San Francisco area, the average age is something like 32. And, and, you know, most of the women that she's seen at UCSF are 35 or older. And a lot of it is like what Caitlin said, the issue of education. People who are living in big urban cities are probably more likely to have degrees, to have high-paying jobs, to have taken this time to build their careers and, and get their education. It also has to do with, you know, cultural mores. If you look around and everyone around you is waiting until they're 35 to start having children, you might do the same. You might be more likely to do the same. If you look around and everyone around you is having children very early, perhaps foregoing college, if there, you know, is a strong um, 
cultural opposition to abortion or to certain kinds of contraception, then you might start your family earlier. So, you know, people are more likely to live around people like them now. The United States is, you know, very much um, a country of bubbles right now. And so people look around them, see what other people are doing like them, and that probably influences their choices too. Claire, uh, uh, talk a little bit about how uh, cultural norms uh, affect fertility, because one of the other gap we we've talked about the gap in uh, between people who are college educated and not people who are college educated tend to wait a lot longer to have their first kid. But there's also a gap between uh, women who are married and women who are not, and when they have their first child. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and sort of the cultural things going on there? Sure. People who have babies at young ages in their early 20s are much more likely to be unmarried, and um, the pregnancies are also much more likely to be unplanned. So, of course, this influences how the child grows up in terms of whether there are two parents around, whether there was, you know, savings and things like that started in the way that you might for a planned pregnancy um, versus an unplanned one. I think the biggest cultural difference is around gender norms. So people in general, of course, this is a generalization and isn't true for everybody, but in places where where women start families young, there tend to be more traditional ideas about gender norms. There tends to be less acceptance of abortion and also more acceptance of the idea of women as caretakers and homemakers and men as breadwinners. In places where women are having babies later and where they're more educated, there also tends to be um, more liberal ideas about gender norms, which is to say um, more of a belief that men and women should share responsibilities in the home and family and then earning money. And then these things are perpetuated, right? Because if you wait until you have a graduate degree and a career to have a baby, it's probably more likely you're going to go back to work and, you know, continue to be a breadwinner for the family, which necessitates sharing more of the home tasks. If you um, don't have a degree and you start a family early, you're probably going to have um, more of the childcare responsibility. So that's the cultural norm that I find to be the most interesting here. And it seems, too, that there's a kind of political overlay to that, a kind of red-blue divide as well, to some degree, going on with what you're describing. There is. And there's um, two law professors have written a book about this in which they did sort of describe that as red and blue America. um, And the single biggest difference that they focused on was the age of first birth. Now, as Caitlin will tell you, it's not it's not exactly that. There are much of red America um, where people are waiting to have children. It's really... um, more about education, but geography geography does play a role. It's the big cities um, and coastal areas and more liberal areas where people are also more likely to have degrees and to be married and to wait to have children. And you know the the fact that people in America are delaying marriage overall, they're getting married married later and they're getting married less. But the people who are continuing to get married and to divorce less are the more educated and more privileged people. It's become almost a mark of privilege to be married and to start a family with two parents in some ways. Um, And part of this is that people are just waiting 
to start adulthood until they feel financially secure. And they're not marrying until they feel financially secure. And so often this means having a baby before you get married if you're not at that place yet where you feel financially secure enough to get married, but you might still decide to have your baby. Hmm. Caitlin, do you see a political overlay to this? Or when you look at the data, do you think, no, you know, it's more complicated than that? Yeah, I really agree with with Claire's take on it. It's certainly if if you want to look at a red-blue map of the politics of the United States and you want to overlay that with a map of age at first birth, you're going to see a pretty strong correlation. But I think that the underlying factors there are variation in education and in how urban an area is. And so I think that those are really important explanatory variables. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Caitlin Knowles-Myers, a professor at Middlebury College, and Claire Kane miller a correspondent for The New York Times. We're talking about how American families are changing. Claire, when you talk to women who are delaying having kids or, you know, who have kids but, but delayed it, do you get the sense that they're mostly doing that because they want to get higher up in their careers and have more money? And I also wonder, do they think they were right? To, to make to do that delay. I expected to hear more women saying that they wanted to get higher up in their careers. You know, we're very aware that when you become a mother, that's when the pay gap, the gender pay gap starts. You know, you have the the mommy penalty at work. Instead, I heard much much more from women who were delaying that it was one of two things. Either it was feeling like they couldn't afford kids, not because of where they were in their career, but because of things like their student loans and um, the price of homes in the neighborhoods where they would want to raise kids and the price of college. And the other thing I heard was just wanting more control over their time, feeling like they wanted to do things like travel or pursue hobbies or pursue, you know, second careers, and that they finally had a choice to do those things instead of having children. In terms of the people who waited, I've heard mixed things. Fertility starts declining pretty rapidly in your 30s, as we all know. And I heard from plenty of women who said, oh, I thought I could wait till 35. All my friends were doing it. I see it all the time. And then I couldn't get pregnant. And it was so difficult because I had to invest in all these, you know, fertility treatments and it's expensive. And takes a lot of time. And so, you know, there are those concerns for sure. On the other hand, um, women who've waited feel that it's much easier to go back to their careers after a maternity leave and having children because they've achieved a point at their careers in which they have a lot of respect and seniority and a lot of passion for their job. Um, and so they feel it's easier than if they had you know, left their career earlier to have a child and tried to return. Um, so it's kind of a mix. H how have you found that technology factors into this? You kind of alluded to it. You know, the rise in IVF, the rise in people, in women freezing their eggs. I mean, these were not things that, you know, in 1972, I think people were talking about much. But like when we talk about, wow, it's women over 40 whose birth rate is on the increase and everybody else's the birth rate is on the de decrease. What's sure. the role of technology? 
There are, of course, a lot of medical advances, not just in terms of getting pregnant, freezing your eggs, or getting fertility treatments, but also in terms of genetic testing. Of course, one of the reasons that doctors warned women about waiting to get pregnant besides that they might not get pregnant is that there's a higher risk of birth defects when parents are older. And doctors said to me in interviews that because of genetic testing from really early on, you know, at six weeks now, even before, even, you know, if you're doing IVF, you can test embryos before they're implanted to see if if those are issues, that it really has empowered women to feel more comfortable waiting. On the other hand, we need to remember these things are so expensive. Health insurance does not cover them to a large degree. Sometimes employers do, but that's if you work at um, a very you know privileged employer. And so this is a certain group of women for this who this even matters, and it's a small group. One of the things that was interesting I found in the poll that we did was that 1% of women had said that they had frozen their eggs or had started the process of freezing their eggs. 50% said they wished they could. That is a huge difference, and the reason was entirely because of the cost. It's just incredibly prohibitively expensive for a lot of women, and as a lot of OBs will warn you, it is not um, a guarantee that you actually will get pregnant. Um, Caitlin, did you want to get in here? Yeah. So I think that that's that's fascinating, particularly that very large fraction of women who say that they they wish they could freeze their eggs. I think the other piece of technology that you don't want to leave out is the expanded access to contraception and Mm -hmm. particularly long acting reversible contraception, which is IUDs and implants. They are still far from the most popular methods of reversible contraception, but they're gaining in popularity and their efficacy is much higher than more traditional reversible methods like the pill and condoms because there's a pretty big user error factor in the use of pill and condoms versus almost none in the use of IUDs and implants. And the increased use of those methods also is going to play a role in decreasing unintended pregnancies, which still account for almost half of all pregnancies. Um, You mentioned before the advent of legalized abortion and like how much that decreased teen pregnancy as well as uh, marriages amongst very young people. Do we have a sense of how overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, which certainly seems possible at this point, um, how that might impact fertility? Do you think birth rates would start to go up again? I do, but I don't think it would be the opposite side of the same coin. A lot has changed since 1973. In particular, women have access to better contraceptive technology. And I also think that the market for illegal abortions would look very different. It's no longer the age of the coat hanger, thank God. I suspect that if Roe were to be overturned, that abortion would remain legal in quite a few states. There are people who've estimated this, but probably around 17 states at least would um, still have legal access to abortion. And women who had the means would probably travel to those states in pretty large numbers. That, of course, is legal. And then on the on kind of the black market side, uh, in other countries where abortion is not legal, there often is a, a black market in the drugs that can be used to induce abortions. And I think that that's a similar market would potentially develop in the United States. There's anecdotal evidence that that, in fact, is what happened uh, in some areas of Texas after there was a dramatic decline in the number of abortion clinics in that state in 2016. Hmm. As you've both followed this, um, Claire, we can start with you. Um, Do you think it's a good thing that 
that women are having kids later? As you've sort of watched all this data accumulate, how does it strike you? I can't judge whether it's a good thing. I think it's a very personal decision. But one thing that really struck me is that there were really pros and cons to both choices. The women who I interviewed who started their families late, they had more money. They had a more successful career. They were able to provide their children with um, a lot more things that take financial resources. On the other hand, they struggled with fertility. They were more likely to have fewer children than they had hoped. They're more likely to live far from extended family, either because their you know, parents were too elderly or because they had moved to big urban centers to pursue their careers far from their parents. Um, and then the people who I interviewed who started families early, they were more likely to be single, to not have the support of a father. The, the pregnancies were more likely to be unplanned. They had less money to invest in their children. On the other hand, they talked about having a lot more energy to play with their children, that they were appreciated that they were still going to be young when their children were older. Their physical health might have been better in terms of um, fertility and other things because of their youth. And they were also more likely to live in areas that really valued family ties, that really valued you know, big extended families, being near each other, continuing your family as a source of meaning in your community. Um, so I really see pros and, and cons um, for both. Caitlin, what do you think? Do you think it's a good thing that women are waiting till later to have kids? Um, economists are, are are fairly disposed <laughs> to not passing this sort of, this sort of judgment. I, I tend not to go for good or bad, but simply trying to understand the choice. But I, I really do think that if I can take off my economist hat for a mm -hmm. moment, that it's a good idea to get away from a moral judgment about the age at which it is right for a woman to have a child. It is an extremely complex and personal decision. And there are young mothers who have made a choice to be young mothers that's a, a perfectly good choice for them and with which they're happy. I think what I would like to see is simply a situation where women are becoming mothers because they intend to and they wish to. And at whatever age they intend and wish to become mothers, I am personally okay with it. Caitlin Knowles-Myers is an economist at Middlebury College. She has analyzed the data on women's fertility. And Claire Kane Miller is a correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. read more about some of the data that we've talked about, we've got it for you at our website, along with some great work by The New York Times that allows you to look at the average age of first birth for your county. That's all at innovationhub.org. of weeks ago on Innovation Hub, we looked at how technology has affected the jobs of Americans across the country. For some, as we heard, the fallout has been disastrous. They know that they are increasingly disposable. They feel that in their bones. But for others who work on developing new technologies, there's a sense that this sort of change is inevitable. It brings new opportunities, and yes, it does close off others. And they argue that's been true for thousands of years. This time that we're hearkening back to doesn't exist. And so the question isn't, oh, we've rushed into it. The world has already gone there. 
We wanted to know what has your experience been with tech at work? Good? Bad? Clarence Coggins, who drives for ride-sharing services and has a taxi in Jersey City, New Jersey, says that technology has provided him freedom, freedom to set his own schedule and design his day. You have to work, all right? But I get to set when I want to work. I can work either late at night. I can work early in the morning. I've basically been free to operate within a 24-7 parameter, whereas when you work a regular 9-to-5 type of job, you're provided the operation time that your employer does. Kathy Weaver, an x-ray tech, agreed that technology has helped her at work, but in a different way. She wrote, Technology made my job faster, easier, and more productive. Switching from film to digital made it cheaper and far more efficient. But not everyone was so thrilled about how tech has changed their lives. Jeff Cook told us that as someone who had been a successful typesetter, quote, desktop publishing ruined my career, period. And Lynn Weinstein, a pharmacist, noted that since she stands five feet tall, quote, automation has made many jobs almost inaccessible to me because it's too hard for me to spend seven hours a day reaching far enough across the counter to get to the bins containing a patient's order that are sent to us on a conveyor belt. I'm not the only one who ends up with a terrible backache and strained shoulders. Remember, you can always let us know what you're thinking about jobs or tech or anything else. Just email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. Earlier today, I came across a question, and I was supposed to choose A or B. So here's the question. If you were a teacher, would you rather teach A, fact courses, or B, courses involving theory? Well, as someone who taught for several years, I don't know that I'd want to teach a course that's nothing but facts, but I'm also not sure I'd want to teach a course that had no facts and was all theories, which probably is not what the people who developed the question would want to hear. The question, after all, is part of a test that revolutionized personality assessment in America. It's called the Myers-Briggs. And if you aren't difficult like me and you actually answer the questions, you can figure out if you're introverted or extroverted, if you rely more on thinking or feeling and so on. You can understand your personality better. At least that was the idea. The question of whether the Myers-Briggs, whose full name is the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, has really told the millions of people who've taken it over the past 70-ish years anything enlightening about themselves, that's debatable. Mervé Emery is an associate professor at Oxford University and the author of the book The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. Mervé, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. And I love that introduction. Oh, thank you. Uh, So why, I just have to ask you, you know, why, a lot of people have heard of the Myers-Briggs. If I've ever taken it, it's far enough back that I can't remember. What about this test made you think, I know, I'm going to go write a big book about how this test came to be? Well, so I took it first when I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from college and I had started working as a management consultant at Bain & Company. 
And I took it, you know, two weeks into my job. And I remember when I got my results, I was absolutely fascinated by them. I was completely compelled by the idea that there was an instrument out there that could reveal more to me about myself than I already knew. Mm-hmm. And I was someone who, you know, I think like like many people in college and growing up had always thought that what I was, who myself was, was the sum total of what I had accomplished. And so the idea mm-hmm. that there was something innate to my personality. There was something essential and unchanging that didn't depend on anything that I really did with my life was really fascinating to me. Hmm. I should say uh, that, you know, I called it a test. A lot of people call it the Myers-Briggs test. It isn't the, the people who developed it um, didn't call it a test. It's really, like you said, it's like this personality assessment or personality indicator. Do you think that the word test matters? Like, you know, normally when people take something and there's, you know, the choice is A or B, they think like that's a test. What do you think about this word that, you know, has been rejected in terms of the Myers-Briggs? Like it, everybody may call it a test, but it's not really a test. Right. So there's kind of a funny story behind this, which is that um, in order to get access to the papers of Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers, I actually had to go to a Myers-Briggs training session, okay. which was also called a re-education program. I'm putting that in very heavy quotes. Wow. It was called a re-education <laughs> it, program. It was called a re-education program. And the first rule that we were taught in this re-education program was that you never, under any circumstances, refer to Myers-Briggs as a test. You always call it an indicator. And you do that because they claimed a test is something that has right or wrong answers. And the whole idea behind the indicator is that it's not a, a personality assessment tool that divides people whose personalities are normal from those whose personalities are abnormal, but it's an indicator that indicates your preferences and no one kind of preference for extroversion versus introversion or thinking versus feeling is better than any other kind of preference. So there's this real ideology of a kind of democratic understanding of type and of personality Mm. that comes along with the Myers-Briggs. And I think all of that is baked into the idea that you are never supposed to call it a test, only an indicator. Do you buy that? Do you think it is not a test? I mean, I don't actually think it matters what you call it. It certainly doesn't, you know, do away with the idea that certain personality types are more valuable than others. And I think it actually does that even before you get to the level of figuring out what your type is. So one of the really interesting things to note is that when it was initially designed, it it was thought the creator, Isabel Briggs Myers, believed that it wasn't actually worth assessing anybody with an IQ under 100. She believed that certain people just weren't smart enough. They didn't have the cognitive abilities to differentiate their personalities. And there are interesting ways in which all kinds of assumptions about who gets to have a personality have been baked into the indicator and continue to be perpetuated by the way that it's used today. So I think whether or not you call it a test, it still does the work of sorting people in society based on, you know, hierarchies of intelligence and class uh, and and gender and race. Hmm. Um, I mentioned one question that's on the test. Can you think of like one or two more off the top of your head that might give people, especially who haven't taken Myers-Briggs or haven't taken it in a really long time, just to, you know, remind people of what kinds of questions you get asked? Right. So one example might be, you are planning a vacation to Disneyland. Do you plan out everything you are going to do well in advance of going on your trip? 
or do you wait until you get there and just see what strikes your fancy? So that's mm. a very typical judging versus perceiving question. You know, the judging okay. types are the people who have a preference for sort of systematically organizing things in advance, while the perceiving types are the ones who have a preference for spontaneity and flexibility. Mm. Another question might be, if you go to a party where you don't know anybody, are you more likely to A, chat up the first person that walks along or B, wait for somebody to talk to you? And that is an example of a kind of typical extroversion, introversion question. So Myers-Briggs came on the scene in the 40s, but obviously became bigger after that. How do you think it's changed America? Right. So the the first thing to say is just to explain a little bit about why it came on the scene in the 40s. And the answer to that is because immediately after World War II, there was this real boom in the labor force. And employers at that moment were really hungry for quick and easy and standardized ways to simplify hiring. So to match potential employees to the jobs that were best suited for them. And so Myers-Briggs comes onto the scene in 1943 as a tool for hiring. And then once people are already hired as a tool for promoting, reassigning, and even firing people within large corporations. Hmm. When you say firing, do you mean like, I mean, could a division head think, well, in this division, this is sales. It's very important that people be extroverted. Your Myers-Briggs is showing you're introverted. That's it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you have records okay. from the early 40s where you see precisely that happening. I think your example about sales is really apt because it was also coming onto the scene at a moment where so much more of the work that was being done was people-based. It was sales work. It was managerial work. Um, and there weren't sort of easy metrics for figuring out who was good at managing people. Um, and so personality became one of those kind of indescribable or ineffable qualities that people were looking for ways to talk about in a consistent and standardized fashion. So, you know, that's, I think, why it comes about or why it really, you know, starts in the 40s. But then, you know, I think it, it flourishes on the backs of major institutions that are interested in figuring out how to sort people. So universities are among the first institutions to really take up Myers-Briggs and try to figure out if they can use it the same way that they're using the SAT huh. to screen candidates. Hmm. The military is one of its earliest adopters. And even during World War II, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, is using Myers-Briggs to match spies to the covert missions that they believe will be best suited to their personalities. And so I think, you know, one of the ways in which it's really changed America and the world more generally is that it was really a forerunner to the idea that there were just certain jobs, certain professions, certain niches of society that some people were better suited to inhabiting and that to inhabit those jobs or niches was something that people should do freely and gladly. So if your personality was suited to a particular job, you should do that job not just with satisfaction, but with with a sense of self-actualization. You should be able to root your sense of self in that job. So in that sense, I think it was really kind of foreshadowing a lot of these mantras we have today, like love what you do, which encourage people to believe that work and um, that, that work and these kinds of institutional settings are where they should they should find and develop their senses of self. Cause you've got personality. Walk with personality. Talk with personality. Smile with 
When we come back, more with Merve Emery on how a personality assessment changed our view of ourselves and what we're destined for in life. Plus the real and really strange story of the women who created it. So she becomes... You know, she starts to fantasize about him. She starts to write songs about him. She starts to write erotic fan fiction about him. Um, and, And eventually she starts stylizing herself as his disciple. Remember, you can sign up for our newsletter at our website, innovationhub.org. You can find out more about what's coming up on the show. And you'll also get our top reads for the week. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back right after this. In the late 1950s, ETS, the Educational Testing Service, which you may have heard of because they're the folks who administer the SAT, well, in the 1950s and the early 1960s, they were very interested in having something else that could be administered to students. But what they had in mind wouldn't test what you'd learned in school or how good you were at math or language. It would assess your personality. It was called the Myers-Briggs, and the idea was that it was an indicator. It indicated your personality. So ETS started testing it out on high school and college kids. Here, once again, is scholar Merve Emre. And they started really trying to kind of build up a database um, that they could draw on to validate the indicator. And they just couldn't do it. So most of the really basic assumptions about the indicator that, you know, people were kind of cleanly divided into these two different, you know, dichotomies of personality, extrovert or introvert thinking or feeling, uh, that just didn't hold any water. Emery is an associate professor at Oxford University, and she's the author of the book The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. And, you know, they also found, and this continues to be the case, that the indicator's test-retest reliability was low. So that if you took it one time and then you took it again, either three weeks or three years later, you very often would not get the same result as the first time. The ETS may not have loved the Myers-Briggs, but the personality indicator went on to become incredibly popular by dividing people into categories. Extroverted versus introverted, thinking versus feeling, judging versus perceiving, and sensing versus intuition. Emery argues that this sort of categorization is seductive, the notion that you can know more about yourself simply by answering a series of questions about personal preferences. Questions, for example, about whether you plan ahead when you take vacations or whether you like more spontaneity. When Emery started to wonder where the Myers-Briggs came from, what the story was behind the two folks who developed it, a couple of things intrigued her. The first was this. The developers of this assessment that had been embraced by corporate America, by the military, they weren't who you might imagine. Most of the time when we see any kind of uh, instrument with last names attached to it, we assume that it's two men who lent their names to it. And so discovering that it was two women made me really, really curious, uh, and two women with no training in psychology or sociology. So it made me really, really curious to discover how they had designed it and how it had become the most popular personality assessment in the world. The second bit of intrigue was that the story of these two women, Catherine Cook Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers, was about well-kept secrets. At some point in the 70s, Isabel did compare the answer keys to the to the Myers-Briggs to the nuclear codes. And she wouldn't oh, share okay. them. Well, she wouldn't then... share them with anybody because she said, you know, it would, you know, if they fell into the wrong hands, it would be like the nuclear codes fell into the wrong hands. It was unusually hard for Emory to access the papers and the records of Briggs and Myers, neither of whom were professionally trained as psychologists or sociologists. 
but they were both mothers, and they felt that trying to figure out what type of person someone was, that felt intrinsically logical. You know, I think anybody who has more than one child knows that, you know, they really are very, very different from the beginning. And it's so hard not to engage in trying to explain that difference and trying to think about what it might mean for the rest of their lives. And so I think, you know, they were producing knowledge about psychology and personality. They just weren't producing it in a way that's, you know, recognizable to us today as being valid. The basis, though, the inspiration for their work was a tremendously famous man, a celebrated psychiatrist from Switzerland named Carl Jung. And Jung's life became strangely, very strangely, bound up in theirs. Here's how that happened. So, you know, Catherine Briggs, the mother of the pair, is born in 1875, goes to college at Michigan Agricultural College uh, at the age of 14, and she graduates at the absolute top of her class and marries, of course, the man who graduated second. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they... Sounds moved, like a good pair. Yeah, right. So they moved to Washington, D.C., and she has three children, two of whom die in early infancy. And she becomes very interested in the idea of how she can not just, you know, protect her children from death, but make sure that in their life they manage to become the best possible versions of themselves. And so she opens what she calls a cosmic laboratory of baby training in the living room of her house in Washington, D.C. And she starts wow. typing her daughter, Isabel, and, you know, the children from around the neighborhood whose parents bring them to her to her house. When you say typing, you mean like figuring out their personality type? Yeah, figuring out their personality yeah, type. Okay, and actually, okay. the the really the earliest version of the Myers-Briggs questionnaire is a questionnaire that she devises and gives to the parents of these children that is called the Obedience Curiosity Child Questionnaire. And it's trying to determine whether your child is an obedient child or a curious child. So that's her original typological system or those two types. So, you know, she raises her daughter under this system. Her daughter, Isabel, is this kind of exceptional young woman. She goes off to Swarthmore at the age of 16. And Catherine oh. falls into this really, really deep depression. Isabel's personality has been Catherine's life's work, and she doesn't know what to do with herself. And in 1923, she reads a review in The New Republic of Carl Jung's book, Psychological Types. And she thinks, well, this actually sounds quite similar to the typological system that I was working with, so I should read it. And she mm -hmm. reads it, and she becomes absolutely obsessed with it. So from 1923 to 1928, every day she copies sentences of it out on these little three-by-five index cards. And she starts writing to Young, asking him to clarify moments in the book that she doesn't understand. And that kind of intellectual obsession slowly takes on a, a darker cast. So she becomes... You know, she starts to fantasize about him. She starts to write songs about him. She starts to write erotic fan fiction about him. Wow. And, and eventually she starts stylizing herself as his disciple and starts trying to take on patients in her neighborhood. Uh, very, very sort of sick teenage girls and boys who really need to be under a physician's care. But she believes that through young, she can she can help heal their souls. Mm. So, you know, eventually when Isabel sort of takes over the type system in the 40s, she takes the the Jungian language of type that she learned from her mother 
and she puts it to use in this questionnaire that basically, you know, once you answer the questions, then indicates whether you are, you know, extroverted or introverted, sensing or intuitive, thinking or feeling, which are Jung's original categories of personality. And then she adds judging and perceiving to that. And one just kind of interesting, you know, thing to note is that her mother, who's taught her this language of type, is deeply disapproving of her standardizing it in a questionnaire. She thinks that in order to really understand Jungian typology, you have to devote your entire life to it. And so she's quite irritated that her daughter has taken what she spent the entire second half of her life learning and has devoted herself to in this kind of religious, obsessive way Mm. and has made it into this product that, you know, eventually anybody can have access to. When would you say that Myers-Briggs became something that you know, lots of people in America knew about. Like, when did it achieve fame? It's it's really in the 80s, the late 80s. That really? It, that okay, it, yeah. okay. Yeah, it's, it's a recent phenomenon compared to when it was uh, actually designed. Is there, a, is there a curve on the Myers-Briggs? Like, there was a moment when it was really popular when you mentioned the military and, and employers. Is that still all true? Or, you know, did at some point in the last few decades it, it start to sort of wane in terms of its importance and how often it was administered? You know, I don't think it's waned in society more generally. So I think, in, you know, employers continue to use it. The, the, the Department of Defense continues to use it. College counselors continue to use it. The church continues to use it. You know, it certainly hasn't waned in popularity. But I think a test like the Big Five, for instance, has definitely replaced it as a more valid or more reliable personality test. But I just don't see the the Myers-Briggs type indicator going away anytime soon. And that language of type, that language of self that it offers is just so immensely clarifying and gives people a way to make sense of the absolute messiness of life in ways that make them feel both both seen and also make them feel like they belong to something greater than themselves. So, you know, I think the truth of the indicator is that its ideology about self and social belonging is so much more powerful than anything that, you know, scientific validity or reliability could, could, you know, could dispel. Finally, do you see the influence of the Myers-Briggs in larger ways in society? I mean, it could be anything from like the Cosmo quiz, right? Like what kind of friend are you? What kind of girlfriend are you? There's BuzzFeed quiz. I mean, you know, this idea that you could answer some questions with with a few different options and know something additional about yourself that maybe you didn't know before. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just wonder if you think that's part of the sort of legacy of Myers-Briggs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the BuzzFeed quiz is sort of the most the most obvious legacy. Um, But the BuzzFeed quiz, I like to think of as being a little bit ironizing, you know, because the BuzzFeed quiz is often positing these connections between things that are not in any way related, right? So like, what does your favorite cocktail tell you about what kind of Taylor Swift song you'll be? I mean, that's just so, (laughs) it's just so absurd that you have to think that they're sort of poking fun at or they're parodying the way that Myers-Briggs takes very seriously the connections between, you know, like the question that you cited in your introduction, like, do you like to teach Mm -hmm. courses involving fact or theory, fact versus theory, the way it takes very seriously linking those kinds of uncertainty 
unsustainable questions to these like larger observations about ourselves. So, you know, I, I think the BuzzFeed quiz is actually quite canny the way that it does it. Um, you know, when I was at the when I was at the Myers-Briggs re-education program that I had to go to, um, <laughs> the the two areas where it has an influence that I found quite fascinating are one in in culture. So I was told there that so many sitcom writers use Myers-Briggs to create sort of, you know, oppositional characters. And the example that they gave was the X-Files having Mulder and Scully be these two kind of diametrically opposed S and N, T and F pairs, the thinking versus the feeling, the sensing versus mm-hmm. the intuitive type. So I think you really see it in in cultural representations, particularly in shows where you're supposed to have this, you know, like Friends, for instance, where like this this limited cast of characters is supposed to stand in right. for like all of human society. Everybody, so you, right. you see it there. And then the last place is in online dating. I learned at the training that I can't remember if it was eHarmony or Match.com, but one of them approached Myers-Briggs very early on to see if they could use the MBTI intellectual property for their algorithms, and they were told that they couldn't. But certainly dating sites use sort of similar kind of typological thinking to figure out how to match people. And I don't think it's an accident that very often on people's online dating sites, you'll see them say like, oh, I'm an ENTJ or I'm an ISFP (laughs) or whatever. And, you know, I think that's part of the fantasy I was talking about earlier that like revealing, like speaking those four letters, it can actually like attract a person who like sees something in you that's, you know, special, but also feels familiar. Merve Emery is an associate professor at Oxford University. She's the author of the book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. Merve, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you for having me. earlier that the Myers-Briggs was heavily influenced by Carl Jung's work, Psychological Types. Well, we've got that text for you on our website if you want to dive even deeper into personality analysis. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help this week from Daniel Powell and Asil Kibbe. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.